listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Mexico by the Midwestern. The Midwestern is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them and let you hear the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, I've got a historical mystery oh, for I you. Yeah, the life and, for our purposes, the death of President William Henry Harrison. So let me test your American history knowledge what do you know about William Henry Harrison? I don't know much, but I know the Pawn Stars, the the guys who run the yeah, Pawn Stars, they're, yeah. they're related. To, their last name is Harrison, and they're related. Oh, to they're related to him. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Good job. I'll give you points for that one. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, here's here's why you might not remember him, and here's what the history books have to say: Our ninth president died of pneumonia a month into his term because he gave a long inaugural speech while standing in the freezing rain. I mean, can you imagine reaching the pinnacle of your career only to die from the act of accepting it? Jeez. It's really quite sad. But is it true? Until recently, the history books have implied President Harrison's own foolish actions caused his death. His inaugural ceremony was outdoors in Washington, D.C. in March. That's still winter. At the age of 68, he was an old man. He insisted on riding a horse to the ceremony rather than in the carriage he was given. He refused to wear a coat, hat, or gloves because he thought it made him look weak. And he gave a two-hour speech, the longest inaugural address in history while standing in the wet and cold. So, sounds like a slam dunk cause and effect to me. Yeah, I mean, two hours. Uh, You got it. Yes. But a modern medical analysis is saying, wait, not so fast. According to a story in the New York Times five years ago, a pair of medical school doctors published an analysis supporting the idea that the real killer might have been actually lurking at a stinking fetid marsh just a few blocks from the White House. So let me tell you the story and see if you agree. Ohio gave our country eight of its presidents, William Henry Harrison being one of them. Harrison didn't start out here, though, of course. Harrison was the youngest of seven children born in 1773 in the colony of Virginia. And I say colony because the United States won't even become a country for another three years. Harrison will be the last president we have who was born a British subject. His dad was a founding father. Benjamin Harris V signed the Declaration of Independence. Young William was on a path to become a doctor. At the age of 18 in 1791, he enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania and began to study medicine. He didn't even finish his first year, and that option was stripped from him. His father died, and the family had no money to continue his education. And so William did what a lot of young people do today if they don't have enough money to go to college. 
He joined the the military. military. (laughs) (laughs) The Army sent William to the American frontier, which at the time was Fort Washington in Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, Ohio wasn't a state then. We were part of what was known as the Northwest Territory. And the primary nemesis here were the Indians. We were known as the Ohio Valley, though, right? In that time, or no? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I don't know. Harrison had an outstanding career in the military. He spent a good many years commanding troops in various Indian conflicts, then retired from the military and started a long political career. His resume included becoming the first governor for the Indiana Territory, and he wasn't very popular there. William Henry Harrison owned slaves, and he made several attempts to introduce slavery to the Indiana Territory. But the area had a robust anti-slavery movement, and frankly, most people in Congress did not want to see the institution of slavery grow. You know, Thomas Jefferson, who was a a slave owner himself, um, really fought against that. He really hoped that institution would die. Right. I mean, even at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, there were many who didn't believe. Exactly. But Harrison was nothing if not creative. When Congress rejected his ideas, he and appointed territorial judges, they achieved a sort of slavery by authorizing indentured servitude and giving masters authority to determine the length of service. Slavery. Yeah. Anyway, Harrison's time in Indiana eventually came to an end, and he was returned to the military just in time for the War of 1812. He was made a major general and put in charge of infantry and cavalry. After that, he settled down on a farm he had in Ohio. By now, Ohio was a state, and a state that he had a hand in forming. His signature was one of those on the Treaty of Greenville. That was the document in which the Indians agreed to leave the area, allowing Ohio to become a state. By this time, Harrison was married to Anna Tuthill Sims, whose family lived in North Bend, Ohio. He met her back when he was 22 and still stationed at Fort Washington. Anna was the daughter of a judge, and when William asked for her hand in marriage, the judge said, absolutely not. So the couple waited for the judge to leave town on business and got married anyway at the home of a friend in North Bend before William whisked his new bride away for a honeymoon at Fort Washington. When the judge came back, he confronted Harrison and demanded to know how he expected to support a family. Harrison responded, By my sword and my own right arm, sir. Well, Harrison won over his father-in-law, who sold the couple 160 acres in North Bend, which is where they built a home and started a farm. Harrison and Anna had 10 children together. Harrison had 16 children. (laughs) That's because he was a slave owner, and it turns out he had six of his children with a slave woman named Dilsia. Here's an interesting fact we're sharing, Steve. Harrison and Dilsia would become great-grandparents of Walter Francis White. He was a very famous civil rights activist from the early 1900s (laughs) who went on to lead the NAACP for 25 years. So maybe some karma there, the slave owner beginning one of the biggest civil rights leaders of the 20th century. Anyway, once William was settled in Ohio, he picked back up on his political career. He represented the young state in Congress for eight years. Four years in the House, four years in the Senate, a 
period in which his congressional colleagues nicknamed him the Buckeye. Interestingly, these very successful careers did not make him wealthy. He lived on a small pension and his farm income. He cultivated corn, and at one point he started a whiskey distillery, but later closed it when he became really disturbed by seeing how people acted when they were drunk. He even gave a speech once where he said, in making whiskey, he had sinned. In 1836, Harrison was serving as clerk of courts for Hamilton County when he ran for president on the ticket of the Whig Party. He lost that one, but the next election cycle, he made an impressive campaign. By then, there were several books out talking about him as a war hero, and that flattering reputation helped him win in a landslide. Harrison traveled to Washington, D.C. to be sworn in. His wife, Anna, was too ill to travel. They made plans for her to join him in May, so he had to go without her. Now, during the election campaign, Harrison's opponents portrayed him as an old man from the backwoods. It must have really gotten to him, because on Inauguration Day, March 4, 1841, he wanted people to see him as that young and virile war hero. Interesting march. Uh, Yeah, it's winter. I mean, he ignored the fact that it was wet and cold. He ditched his overcoat, his gloves, his hat. He refused that closed carriage that was offered him. He trotted to his ceremony on horseback. And then, as I said, he delivered that inaugural address. It was 8,445 words, took nearly two hours to read, and only it was only that short because he had allowed his friend Daniel Webster to edit it for him. <laughs> thank God, Daniel Webster. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and after the speech, he rode the streets in an inaugural parade and attended three inaugural balls that night. In the first and only month of his presidency, Harrison had time to achieve exactly nothing. He spent most of his waking hours receiving visitors and attending to social obligations. Hordes of people who wanted a role in his administration came to the White House to make their pitch. He wrote in a letter, I am so much harassed by the multitude that calls upon me that I can give no proper attention to any business of my own. The first real signs that something else had visited Harrison came on March 26. That was three weeks after his inauguration. He called for his doctor, Thomas Miller, and complained of anxiety and fatigue. His symptoms grew progressively worse over the next two days. While doctors tried to determine what was wrong, the White House was keeping mum. They weren't announcing anything about the president's sudden disappearance from the spotlight. Rumors grew, and within a few days, large crowds started to assemble outside the White House, holding vigil. Nine days after Harrison called for his doctor, he was dead. It was April 4, 1841, exactly one month after taking his oath of office. His last words were to his attending doctor, though it was assumed he meant them for Vice President John Tyler. Sir, I wish you to understand the true principles of the government. I wish them carried out. I ask nothing more. Hey there, I'm James, host of Dakota Spotlight. We're back with a new season, You Killed Chris, A Friend's Fight for Justice. It's a chilling throwback to 1968. A college freshman, Christine Rothschild, is murdered on campus during her morning walk. Join us as we dive into this unsolved case and follow a friend's relentless pursuit of the truth all the way from the flower power era to today. 
Find You Killed Chris on your favorite app or at dakotaspotlight.com. Dr. Miller made a diagnosis that made perfect sense given that brutal inaugural address. Pneumonia of the lower lobe of the right lung complicated by congestion of the liver. Harrison's death was followed by a 30-day period of mourning, which featured roaring cannon salutes, tolling bells, houses covered in black crepe, and tens of thousands of participants in a grand pageant through the streets of the nation's capital. In June, Harrison's body was transported by train and river barge to North Bend, Ohio, and he was buried in a family tomb overlooking the Ohio River, which is now the William Henry Harrison Tomb State Memorial. Hmm. Harrison died nearly penniless. Congress voted his wife Anna a presidential widow's pension of $25,000. That was one year of his salary, equal to about $607,000 today. Yeah. She was also granted the right to mail letters free of charge for the remainder of her life. Oh, nice. You know, nice little bonus yeah. there. But you know what? Not a whole lot of thought has been given to whether Harrison might have actually died of something else. Why would you? Not until some 180 years after his death, when the world's collective knowledge of health and medicine made 19th century remedies seem like voodoo. In 2014, medical university doctors Jane McHugh and Philip McAweeck published an analysis that examined Dr. Miller's notes as well as records of the White House in Washington, D.C., and came up with an entirely different conclusion. President Harrison, they said, didn't die of a cold he caught during his inaugural address. More likely, he died of typhoid fever, courtesy of drinking water polluted by a field of human excrement where Washington, D.C. dumped its sewage. No way. The first clue they pointed to was in Dr. Miller's own diagnosis. Here's what Dr. Miller wrote. The disease was not viewed as a case of pure pneumonia, but as this was the most palpable affection, the term pneumonia afforded a succinct and intelligible answer to the innumerable questions as to the nature of the attack. Okay, that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo, but it sounds like he's hedging. Basically, he's saying pneumonia was a word that people understood. And since everyone wanted an answer, that was as good as any. The modern-day physicians noted that the official record says Harrison called Dr. Miller not to complain of a cold or lung problems, but of anxiety and fatigue. Also, in 1841, the standard treatment for pneumonia was to bleed the patient. To bleed the pre- pre- wow, yeah, that's like that was stuff. that was absolutely the standard. Huh. But Doctor Miller never bled the president, which suggested maybe he wasn't suspecting pneumonia. What, what did he just say pneumonia because he didn't want them to have to burn down the White House for typhoid fever? Is that what they did back then? Uh, who knows? But the question is, how do we get to typhoid fever then? The investigator said it was not hard to find an excellent candidate. Listen to this. In 1841, the nation's capital had no sewer system. Sewage was collected and hauled to above-ground sites, creating stagnant marshes comprised of feces. One of these marshes was seven blocks from the White House's water supply. Government workers made a deposit there of what they called night soil each and every day. 
the marsh would have been a breeding ground for two deadly bacteria that wreak havoc on the gastrointestinal system, Salmonella typhi and S. paratyphi, or typhoid fever. A forensic look at President Harrison's health history suggests he was the perfect vessel for these pathogens. Follow me here. Harrison suffered from indigestion. In the 1840s, indigestion was treated by carbonated alkali. The problem is that carbonated alkali helps indigestion by minimizing gastric acid. But gastric acid is useful. It kills harmful bacteria. So if a sip of water carries with it those typhoid germs, President Harrison's gut might not have had the gastric acid barrier that would have killed it. And now that we know better, there's evidence Dr. Miller was doing all the wrong things and trying to treat Harrison in those final days. For starters, he gave President Harrison a mix of toxic medications that included opium. Opium is an opioid, and all opioids cause constipation. If the intestines are moving things along normally, you would eject harmful things from your body. But if those bacteria are trapped in your intestines, they have more time to invade your bloodstream. Second, Miller repeatedly gave Harrison enemas. I'm guessing to counter how the opium had caused constipation. But the enemas aren't the ideal way to get intestines working again because those typhoid pathogens They perforate ulcers in the lower end of the small intestine. And if that happens, again, the bacteria will leave the intestines and race into the bloodstream. Steve, interestingly, if someone had been able to find the source of President Harrison's illness, it could have saved the life of another president. Zachary Taylor took office a few years after Harrison And he also died less than two years into his term from a gastrointestinal illness. To modern medicine, it's looking more and more like the United States lost two presidents to conditions caused by the White House water supply being so close to a field of raw sewage. Since today's mystery included a bit of an American history lesson with it, let me finish it just with a couple of interesting side points. While Harrison didn't achieve anything in office, he did have a lasting impact by his death. That's because his death set off a constitutional crisis. They had never had a president die in office before. And there was a huge debate about whether Vice President John Tyler was supposed to actually become president or whether he was supposed to simply execute the duties of the office until the next president. The language in the Constitution was not clear about whether the successor was an acting president or an actual president, and sides were drawn. Tyler interpreted the Constitution to mean he was now president, and that was that. He took the oath of office, assumed full powers and the title, and frankly, that's why today... Vice presidents are sworn in as full presidents when a president dies. The precedent was set with Harrison and Tyler. Hmm. And you may already know this, but William Henry Harrison wasn't the last Harrison to sit in the White House. In 1889, his grandson, Benjamin Harris, became the 23rd president of the United States. Presumably, by then, Washington, D.C. had a much better sewage system in place. So let's see what Armchair Detective has to say. 
Tonight with us, we have Teresa Rush from Cuyahoga Falls. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Paula. Hi, Steve. This is uh, Teresa's second time with us. Teresa, would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm born and raised in Cuyahoga Falls, and I am uh, married with three boys, and I absolutely am obsessed with Ohio Mysteries podcasts. I just can't get enough (laughs) of you guys. Oh, I love that. That's my favorite part. Um, I... Are you a history lover in general? Ohio history. Ohio history. Very specific. It's an Ohio girl. It's got to be Ohio history to catch my ear. Awesome. Well, William Henry Harrison is uh, Ohio history. So did you know much about William Henry Harrison before we gave you this task? I really didn't know. I knew he was our ninth president. Beyond that, I, I really didn't know much at all. And why don't you tell us, I know you've found sort of a familial connection. Tell us what you found out. I did. This was pretty exciting for me. So in my husband's family, there's always been this, I don't know, we, one of us needs to probably do a DNA test, but in my husband's side of the family, there's always been an understanding that they are um, descendants of Dr. Benjamin Rush who was um, the doctor at the time in Philadelphia in 1773 during the yellow fever and also signed the Declaration of Independence. And so when I was researching President Harrison, I saw that his father, Benjamin Harrison V, also signed the Declaration of Independence. So I thought that was really cool. Like, wow, he knew, certainly the two Benjamins knew each other. And as I did just a little bit more digging into President Harrison, I found that he had gone into medical school at the University of Pennsylvania for one year. And during that one year, he studied under Dr. Benjamin Rush. So from a family perspective, that was pretty cool. That is cool. You're like two degrees separation away I from uh, President Harrison. That's yes, very we'll cool. It. Yep. Well, let's just get to the, the whodunit. You know, what is your theory? Are you buying the idea that it wasn't pneumonia, it could have been this typhoid fever, or it's so hard to dismiss the pneumonia story just because of the way it played out? What do you think? I do. I think it could be a combination of a lot of things. I absolutely can buy into the typhoid fever, absolutely, especially given just the potential for the tainted water and all that was going on with where they're, I guess we'll call it a sewage system of the day, you know, just such as it were, such as it were. Right. Exactly. So, um, I definitely could buy into that. I could, I could see it being the pneumonia given the conditions of the day that he gave his inaugural speech and his stubbornness of wanting people to think he was, you know, you know, so important and he wasn't, as he had been painted during his um, election season. So um, maybe the pneumonia did play a part of it potentially, but then I just had to go a step back and I had read that his wife, Anna could not accompany him to DC, Washington, DC, because she herself was ill. Although they said she was ill a lot. She'd had 10 children and she was never really a healthy woman. So what her condition was at that time that she couldn't travel but if it's something that was a little flu bug or something, and then he traveled with that, and then the conditions, and then the tainted water, I think it could be anything, but I could totally buy into it. So those things could have really lowered his defenses and then 
typhoid comes in and and finishes right. it off. I think that's it. Just finished them off. Yeah, exactly. Yep. What do you What do you think about this idea of just a field of sewage, a field of open raw sewage as your community's wastewater <laughs> waste <laughs> treatment plant? I think it would be smelly in the summer. I'm just just. I think it would be smelly in the dead of winter. I think think it's like, um, I had to kind of like chuckle a little bit. It's like the first sanitation street crew. I don't know because people had to go and deliver the soil in quotation marks every night. The the night soil. The night soil. (laughs) How'd you like to have that job? What were those people paid? What's your job title? Right. I was thinking, what would their title have been like? Uh, yeah, so night soil really, manager. It'd have to be really fancy, like night soil disposition there you manager. Go. It it does attest to the time, right? I mean, keeping in mind it's the early eighteen hundreds, but yeah, what a job career that had to be. I guess though, it's um, a job career that would always exist. I mean. <laughs> You always have night soil. So. Uh, you always had night soil, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, it's one of those things you just don't think about in modern times. But you just, don't. I mean, it was literally a marsh that was created from human waste. And when right. you think of, I, I don't know, I've got goosebumps right now just thinking of that. Because that's what I was thinking, too. Like, do you think that the doctor, Dr. Miller, didn't want to say it was typhoid because... Maybe he didn't want people to be, like, concerned about their water system. I don't know. Like, I was like, is there a sc- I was trying to build a scandal into this somewhere. That's like, a good question. A Did he know but didn't want to say? Because I don't know why you wouldn't say, but right. son of a gun, if that didn't likely kill a second president. Exactly. Exactly. I just thought it was odd that he went for the pneumonia but didn't even, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what his motivation would have been for hiding it, but you got to wonder if he knew. Yeah. So I don't know. So poor Anna uh, loses her husband. She got a nice severance. Were you happy with her severance? I mean, $25,000 is amazing, especially because he himself died penniless. So I thought, wow, good for you, Anna. You birthed 10 kids. You had, you know, good for you. That's right. You go, girl. Right. You got it. You earned your, you earned that. But what I loved even more than the $25,000 was that she also was granted the ability to, for the rest of her life, mail her mail for free. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. And I thought, That's a pretty amazing perk. That's amazing. And again, speaking to the time, that's all they had. I get it. But again, me trying to find an angle to everything, I was thinking, wouldn't that have maybe been a scandal of the day? Like, she's got 10 kids, and Anna's like, I'll just mail your mail for you, and uh, nobody will ever know. So, 
I'm um, imagining like the taxpayer saying, wait a minute, Anna used to send out four Christmas cards every year. This year she sent out 80 Christmas cards. Who's right. paying for that? <laughs> I ha- I could not get past. I had more fun with that and Anna and thinking, well, Anna, you got that's a, that's an awesome gift. That's called given. mail fraud. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, if she had ten kids and they kind of uh, went their you know their own ways to look for their careers, at least she would have been able to communicate with them all. Right. And, True. Uh, good True. for her. Maybe even travel a little bit with her twenty five thousand. <laughs> I'm just picturing her, picturing her like. You know what? I need to set up a special letter writing desk because I'm going to be doing this a lot now. Right. Like for the rest of my life, I'll just be writing letters to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, William had a very short term as president, but it turns out, even though he accomplished nothing while he was alive, he didn't have right. the time. Right. He did give us something by dying. Right. Yeah, he, he we did. hurried up and got that constitutional crisis out of the way and solved. What did you think? Did it surprise you to know that it even had to de- be debated that we didn't know if the vice president was supposed to become president? No, it was like it's like it, there's a loop. Like we just didn't even think that that could happen that we could lose a president in office, and up until then we hadn't. So you know, it just wasn't even. They just didn't think about it. So I love how the vice president, John Tyler, was like, Noah, it's mine. Like, there's no questions here. You can you can debate it all you want. I'm the president now. And uh, so I, I thought, well, that's a legacy to leave behind, right? You got to look for the good and everything. And it was unfortunate that he had worked so hard to be our president and only had an opportunity for that first month and even then couldn't get anything done. But at the same time, he was able to leave this behind for the forever. We know when, if we lose our president, we know we have one immediately. So through our vice president. But and that he was be- an interesting take. And he begat us some very important people. He, uh, his grandson is going to become president. Yeah. And another, did I, was it grandson or great-grandson? Is gonna, great-grandson, I Is going to become one of the biggest... A civil rights activist of the 20th century. It's amazing. I love it. I love it. What, um, yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's pretty cool. It is. It is. An interesting guy from Ohio. I love that they try to paint him as, in that day, Ohio was the backwoods of the frontier. And all that, you know, all he was good for was to sit in his log cabin and drink hard cider is what they try to say is why you would want to be our president. You're talking so. about that pres- presidential campaign, his opponents. Yes. 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 Thought, wow, you really got him. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You guys have a great day. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, a little more about tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The Midwestern is a Cincinnati band made up of Jim on vocals, guitar and harmonica, Mark on guitar and vocals, Brendan on drums, Anthony on bass, and Adam on lead guitar. And I am avoiding all those last names on purpose because a couple of them are going to trip me up. Anyway, the Midwestern plays rock with a folksy bent. You can follow them on Facebook, Check out their tunes on Spotify or just go to their website, themidwesternband.com. 
We featured these guys once before when they released their new single, Bedridden. I know you're going to love this one, too. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Mexico. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.